fundraising announcement. As you may or may not know, edX Global is a completely nonprofit organization that is run by volunteers. 100% of our donations go to student-led projects around the world, and it would help us tremendously if you donated even as little as $5. Please send us a donation through PayPal or Venmo to edxglobalinc at gmail.com, spelled E-D-A-C-T-S-G-L-O-B-A-L inc at gmail.com. You can be provided with a tax-exempt ID number after your donation by requesting through the same email address. Thank you for your donation. You are listening to the Carrero Podcast. I am Malia Hoffman, and I'm here with Fred Ramirez. Today, our guest is Dr. Ellen Jun. Dr. Jun is the 11th president of California State University, Stanislaus, and has a remarkable and extensive 35-year history with the CSU, having worked at five other CSU campuses prior to joining Stan State. President Jun earned a bachelor's degree in experimental and cognitive psychology from the University of Michigan and obtained both a master's and a PhD in cognitive and development psychology from Princeton University. She is widely published and has written numerous peer-reviewed research and journal articles on topics such as supporting the success of underserved students, the importance of university community engagement, and strategies for supporting non-tenure track faculty, especially women and minorities, as well as promoting innovative teaching strategies. She is the first Korean-American woman president appointed in the U.S. to a four-year public institution. Her husband is a retired physicist, and her son and his wife are faculty at the History Department at Brandeis University. So thank you, Dr. Jung, for joining us today. We would love to hear a little bit about what life was like growing up uh, while you were in elementary school and high school with such a diverse past. Thank you, Malia and Fred. I just wanted to share um, a little bit about my background because it is quite interesting from a historical standpoint. Um, and from that perspective, I have to start and say that um, although I was born and raised in the United States, my parents actually immigrated from South Korea. And uh, many of your listeners may or may not know that Korea was under Japanese occupation starting in 1910, and that lasted all the way until roughly 1945 or so, <clears throat> when uh, of course, um, the Americans were involved in the Korean War. So um, I will just share with you that my mother, um, all the schools and children were told they were no longer Korean, they were now Japanese, so Whoa. they had to learn to speak Japanese. So my mother is actually a little bit more fluent in Japanese than huh. she was in Korean. And um, and her favorite food to this day is udon, Japanese udon noodles. <laughs> and when we go to a Japanese restaurant, they all think she's Japanese because she speaks perfectly good Japanese, oh having learned it in the schools. In the homes, parents secretly taught their children Korean. Wow, that's really uh, interesting. Because they were, they were still Korean. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> so my father uh, was a very um, firm believer in the beauty of democracy and American democracy in particular. So he, as a very young um, boy always thought that he would like to go to America, and he actually studied English as part of his undergraduate training, 
And uh, when he finished his college degree, he went to teach at a uh, girls' school, high school, that was um, American-operated, uh, <clears throat> but for Korean children. And he was an English teacher. <laughs> That's where he met my mother, oh. who was, um, she was actually in medical school at the time that the Korean War, um, they were hearing that the, she was, her, her school was near the North Korean border. And they heard word that the North Koreans were going to bomb the bridge and then come and take over the, uh, move the border south. So she and her family decided they would take that rumor seriously, and they left that night and wow. went to relatives in the south. And as a result, all of her friends that were in medical school, she's lost complete contact. She doesn't know what happened to them because they did, in hmm. fact, um, cross over the bridge. Wow. And so she, of course, was in medical school, but now the, all the records in medical school was gone, yeah. and there was no way to prove this. So she instead... Uh, in the interim, decided to teach chemistry at the high school. <laughs> so um, she that's how she met my father. And hmm. that's when my father decided all along that he was going to escape to go um, to America. Now, by this time, um, you know, the Japanese had um, surrendered because of the Hiroshima and Nagasaki bombing, the, the you know, uh, atom bomb and atomic bomb. So my mother even said she believed in some way that she was Japanese, so she actually remembered crying when the Japanese flag came down. Wow. Now, that's not, that's not true for a lot of her friends. Mm-hmm. Um, parents of um, people of my mom's generation, many of them um, had very, very harsh feelings about the Japanese having been under imperial rule. Mm-hmm. But uh, so after the Korean War was, uh, was over, then, then many, many... Um, missionaries from the United States flooded into South Korea because South Koreans didn't have a formal religion like Buddhism, for example, which is common in um, Japan. There are some Buddhists in in, uh, South Korea. But anyway, so they came and my father was approached by a a missionary uh, who said, young man, why don't you come to America and we'll sponsor you and you can learn to become a minister in our um, more faith-based college. Now, my father was an atheist, (laughs) but so he was not interested. And then he thought, oh, my gosh, this is the way I get out. Because Korea was was not letting young married couples leave Mm. because they represented building, rebuilding the country after the war. So they never actually filed their uh, marriage papers with the government. They had a wedding ceremony. I have all the pictures Mm -hmm. and all the all the villagers thought they were regularly married, but they never filed it because they knew he wanted to come to the U.S. So he took a freight train, a freight ship that took, uh, I don't know, a month or so. He was very poor. Oh, my came gosh. To, uh, came to the university in um, Indiana. And you're wearing your Indiana shirt today. <laughs> Not Indiana University. It was another small uh, college in Indiana with no intention of getting his degree there. So oh. that's why he uh, increased his language skills and reapplied for master's and doctoral program. So when he finished his master's degree in Tennessee, University of Tennessee, that's when he sent for my mother. My mother came to the U.S. at that point, but they uh, never officially announced that they were technically married. And so uh, he had her living, and she went to another um, school, and, <clears throat> and this time now he's at the University of Illinois, and so they're now in Illinois. And um, so she, he had her um, get a room in a wealthy widow's home, where she, um, wealthy widow, 
was loved international students. And that's, um, and my father would come and see her on weekends and they'd go out for coke dates and things like that. And the wealthy widow fancied herself a matchmaker. So she said, oh, this young man is Korean and seems to like you. Why don't, maybe you guys should think about getting married. <laughs> so that's how they got married in the United States. And wow. I followed shortly after as the, wow. you know, as the firstborn. So I was born in Champaign-Urbana, uh, Illinois. And my younger sister, middle sister also was born there. And after my father finished his PhD, he took his first job at Mercer University in uh, Mercer College at that time in Macon, deep south of Macon, Georgia. And at that time, Macon, Georgia, I think had just recently um, stopped being segregated. But the signs that say, you know, black uh, colored people only are showing that these bathrooms and separated, you weren't allowed to go into restaurants and hmm. drinking fountains, all that kind of stuff was still there. Wow. And, and uh, my mother said that my father was the first um, uh, Asian professor ever at that campus. And wow. I was only four years old. And I do remember, um, even as a four-year-old, it was very confusing mm-hmm. because uh, people would shout things at us. And I knew that they were bad things, but I didn't understand them. People mm-hmm. would often, they, most often they thought that we were Japanese. Mm-hmm. And they would say, Japs go home. Mm-hmm. I remember being spit on as a child. Things what? like this. And people pretending to shoot you like they had a, their hand into a gun. And so I uh, think we stayed for two to three years. I started kindergarten, first grade, second grade. Then my father decided it was still uh, too much. And then he took a new job at Grand Valley State College at that time in Allendale, Michigan. So we went north. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I started the third grade. But since I had started to learn to read in uh, Macon, Georgia, I, I do remember my third grade teacher, and this is back in the day, you were too young to know this, but um, they used to read Tom and uh, Jane, you know, the reader, Tom and, um, the, you know, the Dick and Jane. Reader that, Dick and Jane. Dick and Jane. Mm-hmm. Yes. And, and back in those the way, days, the way they taught you to read was each student would be in rows and you'd come up in the front and you have to read a page. And each of us had to read pages. So when I moved to uh, Michigan, I remember that my, my teachers were quite astonished because I was, here was, I was a little Korean girl to them, um, speaking as a Southern drawl because <laughs> mm-hmm. I picked up the accent. Mm-hmm. But, but anyway, so that's how... Um, we lived in a small town in near Grand Rapids. Actually, it's very close to Holland, Michigan. Mm-hmm. So my town was called Jenison, filled with, we were the first, the only Asian family. There was, everybody was Dutch, mainly because it was Holland. Yep. So everyone was blonde and blue-eyed. Mm-hmm. And there was, um, the only minority was, um, let's see, there were no Hispanics. There was one African-American family, us as the only Asian family. And... Um, uh, no Hispanics, no, no, no other. Not, the only minority was um, um, Catholics, <laughs> because <laughs> everyone else was, um, you know, Caucasian. Yeah. So I do remember, uh, even as a child, and um, certainly in high school, that people would say, "Well, where are you from?" And I would say, "Well, I'm from um, Michigan." No, where are you really from? Well, I was born in Illinois. Well, where are you really from? <laughs> How did you learn to speak English so beautifully? I said, I'm an, I was born and I'm raised an American. American. Yeah. <laughs> but that, but that, that, that time in the Midwest, people never could imagine that you could yeah. be born and raised here. So um, as a family joke, I started saying, well, because they wouldn't accept the fact that I was born and raised. So I said, well, actually, I'll tell you, I am really Swedish. 
And that became a family joke. And now my son, when people ask him, he says, well, actually, I'm Norwegian because my son is um, his father. My uh, late husband was Murphy. So he was Irish Catholic. And I met him in graduate school Mm. at Princeton. So um, so it's been a a remarkable journey. Yeah, that's fascinating. So then with with all this that was that's been going on when when you were young and then you're in your high school years, what, what spurred you to major in cognitive and developmental psych? Because it's, because that's, that's that major that not many people go, this is what I want to do. And then, and then then from that, what, what did you wish, wish to do with it? Well, here's the thing. Um, Remember my mother was in medical school when the Korean war was in full boil. And so she, had always believed that she wanted to be a physician to work with the very poor and the very needy, and that that her goal was to help care for people medically. And that was something that was very strong in her heart, which has always been strong in my heart, is to to care about those in need, the underserved. And my father was the same way, because they had both suffered tremendous um, hardship during the Korean War. There was a lot of starvation, all kinds of things. So um, that was always sort of part of our know, commitment as a family. And so I loved science, frankly. And so I started off, always thought I would become a medical doctor and um, satisfied my mom's wishes for (laughs) at least one of her three daughters to become a doctor. And so I went to the University of Michigan as an undergrad, initially starting in biochemistry. And um, because partly because my mother was a chemistry uh, teacher herself. And then uh, then I switched to microbiology, and um, I worked in the emergency room of the hospital, University Hospital at, at University of Michigan, and I worked there for a year and a half, um, from freshman through sophomore, and then as it came time to decide on a major, I became increasingly what's the word, um, disillusioned about medicine, and I realized now that, of course, I was only a sophomore, and you Emergency room medicine is vastly different from other kinds of medicine, as you can imagine. And back in those days, this was in the late 70s, um, it was all medical doctors were white and male and no women. And the only uh, women that were in the emergency room were nurses. And they were not necessarily treated in a, in a you know, respectful way. And so, and then so much about emergency room medicine is just to stabilize the patient, to get them off the floor or into a room or discharged. And so there's no sense of building that relationship and so on. We were called hospital um, emergency room liaisons. So we were there to get word from the patients waiting, who waited on average seven to eight hours to let them know what was happening. We were communicating between the ER and the patients. And so that's when I decided that um, I was not gonna go into medicine because it seemed very um, not very caring. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I had so many units in math and science. I thought, well, what could I switch to? And I happened to stumble on a course on um, memory and reasoning. And it floored me because I could see how they could use really hardcore methodology and statistical skills to measure and learn things that you could not see, touch, or um, feel. And memory is is a cognitive ability, and they use very ingenious techniques to, um, you know, understand the limits of short-term memory, iconic memory, long-term memory, 
all of those things, and I was blown away. So I thought this is something that I could still use a lot of my scientific skills with, but understanding how people think and reason and problem solve. So that's when I changed my mind. I was afraid to go back and tell my parents <laughs> because as the firstborn, they wanted the doctor. And much to my surprise, my mother, of course, was very disappointed. But my father was thrilled. I had no idea that he actually did not have a lot of respect for medical doctors. Interesting. So he was like, and he was a professor, right? So when mm-hmm. I said I wanted to study, um, you know, cognitive psychology, they said, my father said, yeah, go for it. And of course, that meant going to graduate school and potentially becoming a professor like him. Mm-hmm. So that's where I made the change. And I will say I became developmental psychology because I was working, um, I was in the honors program and my honors advisor um, actually had doctoral students that he said at that time he could not place them into professor positions. At that point in time, there was a real dip in the number of open positions for uh, psychology professors and cognitive psychology was relatively new, hadn't yet caught on. And so he said, well, if you go on for the doctorate, maybe you should do something that has something to do with children because then you would have, you could go into education, you could do publishing, you know, there's more opportunities for professorships in that area. So that's when I applied to Princeton in cognitive and developmental psychology. Wow. And um, so I think the only reason I got into Princeton was because um, on my honors thesis was an adaptation of my professor's work on analogical reasoning if A is to B, then C is to D, right? That analogical reasoning is a fairly abstract level of um, con- conceptualization, and it was thought that children would not be able to do that. So I took his research that he was doing with college students, adults, and I um, thought, could we demonstrate this in younger children? So my thesis looked at um, how to see if children as young as um, four and a half and five, so preschool and kindergartners, would they be able to do this? And indeed, they could not spontaneously necessarily, but if you prompt them, they could do it under those conditions. So um, it was written up in the, the most um, prominent journal of, you know, uh, for children. It's called Child Development Stitches Journal. Wow. And uh, that, that was very unusual for um, undergraduates to do. Yeah. And so I think that was my entree into mm-hmm. the Ivy League. <laughs> so that's my whole trajectory. That's, that's incredible. Um, yeah. <laughs> so you began teaching then at Princeton, and when you... Well, no, I was a graduate student. Oh, you were a graduate but I was, student. Yes, okay. so I did my doctoral work there, and of course okay. we were teaching undergraduates mm-hmm. at Princeton, which was very scary for yeah. me initially, <laughs> that's... but uh, it was a great experience. And so from getting your PhD, then you went into higher education as a professional? Yes. Can you talk yes. about that, um, that transition? Yes. Yeah. So again, you know, I followed only four years after I graduated in 1984, and 80, 1980 was a very bad time for finding jobs, right? Mm-hmm. So um, I applied everywhere, everywhere, wherever they had a job opening. And um, nothing, nothing was really uh, panning through. And so as a result, um, I was worried about where I was going to go. So I started applying for lectureships that were not tenure track. Positions, and um, then lo and behold, um, a lectureship opened up at Fred's alma mater, Indiana University, mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, so I applied, got accepted, and um, was not a tenure track position. But they, I asked my advisor, should I go? And my advisor said, yes, 
uh, Pisha because that's still in probably in the top 20 um, in, uh, in terms of the area that I was interested in, you know, early cognitive development. And there were uh, professors, other colleagues there that I could potentially work with. So I went to Indiana University. But after being there for a year, I thought, you know, I need to go somewhere that's where there's greater diversity. And um, it wasn't a tenure track job after all. So I went back on the job market and looked for a job in the second year, got it accepted to uh, Cal State San Bernardino. And again, that was not a tenure track, but they were going to be opening up a tenure track in the upcoming years. So I thought, and I had decided I wanted to be either in the East Coast, the West Coast, maybe Chicago, not the South, you know, not a, you know, um, you know, a, a place with greater diversity. So mm-hmm. that's why I ended up at San Bernardino. And um, I stayed there for um, five years. My son was just had been born, and I was doing a two, uh, let's see, it's a hundred, hundred and two mile commute each way. Wow! And because um, I remember when I was on the interview, I, we were having lunch, and someone faculty member pointed out a line of trees along the foothills and said, "That see that line of trees? That's the San Andreas Fault." <laughs> and so I'd never, you know, had, of course, heard about earthquakes, but never experienced one. But I did my research before uh, accepting the job. And um, so I really worried about, you know, what can I do for earthquake safety? Because it's just a fact of life here in California. Mm-hmm. And um, anyway, so I took the job. And um, then after my son was born, um, realized that if the San Andreas Fault uh, did rupture, then it would take me probably two days to walk home uh, because the freeways would be coming down. I wouldn't be able to drive and so forth. And I decided I had to find a job closer to home because I was living in Orange County. Mm-hmm. So my husband, um, my late husband was uh, working in um, Orange County. But so that's how I got the job at Fullerton. And that's where I met Fred. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, then, and then after that, you just kept on going. <laughs> and, and which is which is wonderful um and so now when you applied and you found out that that you were going to be the next president at cal state university stanislaus what what went through your mind because um listening to 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 you um i i could just imagine everything that was that was just going through your mind with regards to family your 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 um your son and so tell us what what went through your mind well uh, by this point of course my son um was you know out of the house i mean he was in, um he when i was recruited to go to fresno state i was recruited by the provost invited me to apply and as associate provost. And um, when I started at Fresno State, my son was just getting ready to go off to college. So he had finished high school and he came with me um, to uh, Fresno for the summer and then was gonna go off. He, was, he went to Harvard as an undergraduate. And um, then he went from there directly to graduate school, he went to the doctoral program in um, history, American economic history at Columbia. So by the time um, I was now applying for, uh, well, I'd been nominated and then applied for the position at Stanislaus State, 
um, he was already in you know graduate school. So the family issues were simplified from that standpoint. And uh, my first husband had passed, and so um, you know, like maybe eight years later, then I um, fell in love and met my new current husband, and uh, he's a former physics professor, and um, uh, but retired since a little bit older. So he has been traveling with me on all these journeys from the different CSUs, because this is my, uh, Stanislaus State is my sixth and final university, but I have been at two universities for something like 25 years, and then kept getting nominated for different positions, and surprisingly enough, getting, um, so I've been provost twice at two different universities, both at um, San Jose State, and then Dominguez Hills, and then um, now here at president here at uh, Stanislaus. So it was so, I mean, the, the honor to serve as a president, to be chosen by the board of trustees and um, the chancellor, and uh, of course, approved in terms of the governor of the state is such an incredible honor. And I was overjoyed, um, always sad to leave a current campus, but the opportunity to really be at the helm of an institution where there's so much need in Central Valley uh, is such an underserved area of, the, of the, the state that many people don't pay attention to because mm-hmm. we all hear about LA, the Bay Area, San Diego, the coastal cities, but very little is known uh, by the average California about what happens in the mm-hmm. Central Valley. And just as an example, um, the educational attainment rate for a baccalaureate in um, California is, as a state is something about 34%. Wow. 33, 34%. That's still small. Mm-hmm. Nationally, it's, we're higher than the national average. I think the national average is somewhere wow. around 32. Um, but in, in the Central Valley, only 18% actually achieved wow. a bachelor's degree. And that's partly because of access. Uh, mm-hmm. There's just three, three uh, campuses that comprise the Central Valley. One very south in Bakersfield, and there's Fresno. It's an hour and 45 minutes south of, of you know, uh, my campus in, in Turlock, California. And there's just, you know, extreme poverty. And uh, we grow, the Central Valley grows 50% of all the fruits, vegetables, and nuts for America. Wow. And uh, so it is a, a most, one of the most fertile agricultural grounds in, um, in the whole of the United States. And, of course, we have beautiful weather yeah. 12 months out of the year, mm-hmm. right? Um, so it is, you know, there's a lot of um, agricultural industries, more rural than it is urban and a lot of poverty as a result. Um, so that's where I wanted to come to really be able to help our students and our region. And just as an example, um, my campus has just over that 11,000 students. We also have a branch campus in Stockton. And it, just here's another example. Stockton is an urban area, over 400,000 residents, but it is the second largest city in America to experience bankruptcy. Detroit being number one. Oh, wow. Incredible. So, yes. And it's like the third largest inland. It's actually a port city. You might be surprised to learn that. Mm-hmm. So there, there's an inland port. But um, so we have both an urban, uh, small branch campus, and then a um, main campus in Turlock. But of my 11,000 students, 75% are first in the family to go to college. And, um, you know, we are a majority Hispanic institution, 70 I'm sorry, 53%, I believe, are Hispanic, Latina, mostly. And um, 70, um, I'm sorry, 67%, two-thirds of our students are Pell eligible, meaning they're at poverty or below. Wow. 
And the, the gender disparity is quite striking as well. So 75% of my students um, are, no, I'm sorry, excuse me. 75% of our graduate students are female. Of our undergraduates, it's really? um, yes. And again, here's why, if you think about it, if you are a young man in these uh, farming towns and mm -hmm. rural areas, when you graduate at 18, your parents are saying, okay, young man, go get a job. Yeah. yeah. And it, and because nobody has a baccalaureate degree, mm -hmm. and the families and the, the uh, others in the town don't necessarily have that as a pathway. And, um, but so the, the daughters, if the daughters decide, hey, mom and dad, I want to go to college, they will say, okay, all right, mm -hmm. we'll, we'll, we'll support you. Interesting. So, yeah, so it's a very different um, part of California that I really wanted to come and make a difference. Yeah. So we're in doing a, great things. In a rare set of, of, like, unique set of problem, like issues, I guess, not problems, mm -hmm. but, like, issues, obstacles. Yeah. When you were named uh, the first Korean-American uh, university <laughs> professor at a four-year institution, was there a lot of publicity around that, a lot of, <laughs> like, hype it, and recognition? Um, yeah, in a funny way, I guess. Um, I didn't even know that that was the case. Right. I mean, here's here's the interesting thing, is that if you think about it, um, both of you, when you were in undergrads, you had Asian professors teaching classes, right? Mm -hmm. And even when I, and I'm much older than you, uh, had Asian professors, a, a few here and there, and they're often represented highly in the uh, disciplines of science or sometimes, um, you know, sometimes in some of the business classes and all. Um, so the, the truth is, if you ask who are the, uh, the, um, the minority faculty on a campus, the largest percentage are Asian. And yet the percent of Asians who make it into um, deans or provosts or vice presidents or certainly presidents is quite small. And I did not realize that. Mm. So yeah, the that's amazing. Yeah. And um, what's even more striking is uh, when they told me that they were going to put out the, the news um, PR release saying that I was the first Korean American president. I thought, really, really, is that true? I was just shocked. And um, so I had been, um, you know, I, I chose as my inauguration keynote speaker, um, a colleague who I had come to know when I came to, um, you know, to Turlock and she's the state controller. So if you are um, getting a state uh, paycheck, the person who signs your paycheck, <laughs> you know the name there, right? Mm -hmm. And so um, I asked Betty Yi to be my keynote speaker. And um, as we were talking and getting ready for her to come to campus, she said um, that, you know, is there anything that she could help out with? And I said, you know, I've, uh, you know, did you know that I was the only Korean American uh, female president? And she said, yeah, isn't that something? And I said, I just wonder, how could that be? It just doesn't seem possible there's so few. And she said, oh, well, um, the state library reports to her as the, the, the state library system reports to the state controller. And she said, I'll just ask if they want to do a research question. So about two or three months later, I get an email from the head librarian of the state of California, and she had compiled a list. And so I've kept that list more current. So total, there's only been, since um, all America was founded, only 12 female Asian American women presidents. Wow. Which is, that's really astonishing. I was just so surprised. Yeah. So um, that's a, that could be a whole study in itself. I don't know that anyone has paid attention to that, yeah. but um, that was quite surprising. And um, with, 
was oh, so, I was, so one other thing I was going to tell you, you said, did it get publicity? So um, in Orange County, it did get publicity because uh, there's a hyper percentage of Asians living in Orange County mostly. Right. There's a little Koreatown. There's um, little India. There's also, um, let's see, uh, little um, Vietnamese, the highest concentration of Vietnamese. Yeah, little Saigon. And um, so it was starting to run in newspapers and it got picked up by Korean newspapers in both the U.S. and in Korea. So suddenly, my, and then of course they announced my parents. So suddenly my mother was getting letters from people in Korea saying, is that your daughter? Oh, that's so cool. <laughs> and yeah, so yeah. it was pretty, pretty, it really shocked my mom to yeah. keep getting letters from me. That's awesome. That's wonderful. Um, now, with your with with your background, has your previous re- research helped shaped your own work um, as 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 president? But then, yeah. but then also, I'm 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 interested. How how has your everyday life shaped who you are as president? So yes, absolutely. You know, I am um, you know a an empirical scientist by training, and so um, I am the person that looks very carefully at past research and data to inform decisions. I'm not data-driven because, you know, sometimes data, if it's not collected in a um, methodologically sound way, can yield to improper conclusions. So, but I use, ask questions and ask for data and information in order to make decisions. And um, so that has been, and then of course, I also try to increase the level of data awareness of others on my campus to um, use what data, what do we know about our students and what makes, what can be, what will help them in terms of their success and all of those things. So we now have completely updated um, our data portals and our data uh, reporting and all of those things. We have an annual uh, book of trends, for example, that's now in its third year. And I created a whole division, a new division called Strategic Planning, Enrollment Management and Innovation in which the whole institutional effectiveness and assessment um, uh, unit resides. So for, for the first time now, um, faculty, if they're writing grants, can just go on and log in and get whatever data they want. It's interactive and dynamic database. So um, so those are things that um, that are have been helpful in, you know, advancing, I think, making progress on a whole number of grounds. Um, now, let's see, and then, the second part to your question, Fred, was just in terms of lifestyle. Yeah, yeah. How how has your personal life kind of sh- helped help shape um, who you know how you how you run the campus and and all that? Okay. Well, I think for me, I am very much a person who believes in um, shared governance and that is to work with the leadership of the faculty. And that's usually in, through the Senate, for example. And many, the many committees that the Senate also, um, you know, sponsors. But it's I'm also very much, much more of a collaborative leader. I'd like to hear from people, convene people together to hear what their thoughts and ideas are, create task forces or committees um, on special topics. So more people can get involved. And, um, it's, it takes more time to do that, but I think in the end, when you have people who are really working together on a problem and 
coming up with solutions together, you get much more buy-in and much more effectiveness in the long run, rather than just coming in and saying, well, we want to do this or that, and then mandating something. So that has always been um, really important to me. And as a leader, I also, with my own cabinet, really want to have um, a, a true level of being able to trust and to, to speak uh, truth to power, for example. I'm not a very hierarchical person. In fact, I don't even like being referred to as President John. And so, you know, once people, some people still have trouble, you know, saying, I can't not call you President John. <laughs> and I said, well, okay, if that's something that's really hard for you, then I can accept it. But I would prefer to just be called Ellen and not, you know, resort to the titles. So, um, and, you know, the, I do really appreciate when people are candid and honest and you can have uh, relationships that are based on trust and being able to communicate both ways. And um, so those are things that I try and do. And I'm, I do try to keep balance in my life, but it is hard because the life of the president is 24-7. You can never really completely turn it off. Uh, you can go on vacation, but there's always things that are still paying, you have to pay close attention to, and especially now with the pandemic. Um, but I will say that, you know, um, I've always enjoyed working. And so even when I'm not in front of the computer, I'm still always thinking or reading, uh, reading of other things that other campuses are doing or staying in touch with students and so forth. So um, it's just a very, very rich and rewarding life, even with all the disruptions of COVID. But I do see this. I did buy a Fitbit. <laughs> so it tells me when to go to sleep. You know, it'll buzz and say, time to get ready to go to bed. And I'm a night owl. So I'm mm, often yeah. up until one o'clock. And it's very hard to stay in balance. So I catch up on weekends. And then um, also I'm exercising. So I've actually lost weight during the pandemic because I've Great. increased. Built, for the first time, I've built in lunch hour to walk. Uh, not necessarily to eat, maybe eat a little before yeah. and walk. So I've been, uh, and my Fitbit tells me how many calories did I yeah. eat, how many calories did I burn. And so that's been easy, easy. And does so, it tell you when uh, to get up out of your chair because you've been sitting too long too? Yes, yeah, that's, that's right. It gives me those little yeah. reminders. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> so, um, so technology can be your friend. Yes. <laughs> you mentioned the pandemic though a little bit. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about what you've been doing to keep the university moving forward during a lot of like closures and isolation requirements? Yes. I think one of the most important things is because we are, can't see each other at all, right? Yeah. We're, we're operating in a virtual world. Um, just, a, you know, um, we have something like 50 or 60 um, individuals that still come to campus uh, for essential duties. And, um, so that means that communication is so much more important. They can't see me walking around campus. I don't have the meetings where they can come and listen. So I've ramped up the level of communication using Zoom. So I've had many more uh, open campus forum. I've had many more um, coffee conversations. I typically have coffee conversations that people can sign up for, one for faculty, one for staff, one for students. I offered um, office hours with the president um, when we first went virtual, when the, all the CSEs went virtual back in March of last year, a year ago, and um, they were just completely open, so students could join, anybody, uh, often staff and sometimes faculty would join as well. And now I do something called Feel Good Fridays, and that is, um, you know, sometimes when you go to these um, open forums, people are frustrated or maybe they're 
complaining or they're anxious. So you hear more um, people that are anxious, and that can be anxiety-provoking when you listen to people who have, are anxious about this, that, or the other thing. So we have this um, another opportunity, Feel Good Fridays, where they come in, and there's a whole series of prompts that say, um, you know, and, and they're positive prompts. So the idea is to think positive on the on Friday before you head out for the weekend. So things like, can you share something, and groups can sign up, can you share something that lifted your spirits this week? Or share something that you do to help um, cope with COVID, what new hobby have, have you taken up? Or share a funny story that happened this week or something that made you smile. So then when you get people in that group, the, the level of creativity and some of the stories that people share are hilarious. Mm-hmm. So, you have, so you have one hour where everyone is just thinking of something fun, mm-hmm. <laughs> something positive, something that they have done in a, um, in a good way so that they can end the week relaxed and thinking more positive. So that's been a, a lot of fun. It's also my way to say thank you. So I have yeah. Feel Good Fridays for um, everybody who works in the dorm. We still have 90 students who yeah. are still there for various reasons. And so, um, you know, everyone from the uh, custodial staff to the resident advisors to the director of the housing, residential housing, they all got together and, and we talked together about Feel Good Fridays. And so... Um, we're going to be doing one, for example, with student athletes who have not been able to compete, things like oh. that. So, um, so that's another way for me to recognize. Or yeah. all our OIT, our IT staff have been working, you know, incredible hours yep. because of all the, you know, the, the pressure to move on to Zoom mm-hmm. and you know, heartbeat kind of thing. So that's another way for me to say thank you to the different groups. Yeah. Uh, so those are things that I've done to adjust. And now that Zoom is so easy, I think I'll continue some of these things even after we come back to face-to-face because it's so yeah. easy that people don't have to drive or commute. They just mm-hmm. click their you know, Zoom link, and then they are there talking with the president. Yeah. So, I think, so those are some other things. Excellent. Good. Because that was, that was going to be kind of what, what a follow-up question was, was going to be was, you know, once again, we could talk about a lot of the negatives of of COVID, but you know, it, it, it sounds like there's, there's some positives coming out. Um, yes. At least as, as, you know, as well, so what are some other ones? Well, here's the other thing is I'm launching a new, um, initiative or it's not quite an initiative. It's new. Um, we're, I think we're, my, um, my, um, communications team is, um, I think the new name of it is something to the effect of, uh, a year of forward thinking or, um, sort of, and this I'm actually used because, again, I'm an alum at Princeton, so I follow um, the president there, um, Christopher Eisenhuber, who's outstanding, amazing, courageous, um, powerful president in, in how he has moved that, that campus forward. Um, and just as one example is they removed the name Woodrow Wilson, the Woodrow Wilson College of Public Policy, which wow. is... Um, the analog to the JFK public policy school at Harvard. So, and of course, and when I was at Princeton as a graduate student, my roommate was a Woody Woo, the term they call it, Woody Woo, um, MPA, a master's in public administration student. And of course, Woodrow Wilson had been um, president of the United States and, uh, you know, and also was president of Princeton University. And because um, the students actually had petitioned the 
Princeton to remove the name Woodrow Wilson because there's ample evidence, even after he became president of the United States, that he harbored, you know, some serious uh, racist attitudes towards African Americans in, in particular. And um, so they had a commission that did a lot of studying, but you know that Woodrow Wilson was such a rich, um, wealthy, because there were many, many, as you can imagine, um, government officials, uh, Charles Schultz, for example, Secretary of State was a Woody graduate. Um, so they removed the name, President Eisgruber removed the name Woodrow Wilson from the, uh, which I thought would never be possible because it has such name recognition and so many donors and um, it was the analog to the JFK School at Harvard. So that level of bravery was pretty courageous. But yeah. what he did, which I thought was so cool, is that he launched this thing called A Year of Thinking uh, Forward, or A Year of Forward Thinking. Mm-hmm. And they called it, um, let's see, Forward Fest, like Forward Festival. And he, I watched him launch it. Um, he was standing on the ground and saying, you know, despite this pandemic, that um, that all... In, in spite of all that direction, disruption, there were faculty and staff and students who were doing amazing work uh, that would continue, that would continue to lift not just uh, research in their areas, but could also their researchers doing work in um, government and political issues, and that could continue to lift the, the um, knowledge base and understanding of Americans nationally and even internationally. So what it was is a series of panels that were live and that you could always read about these, you know, there's a magazine and there's newsletters and those things. But what was different about this is that they were showcasing the people at Princeton who were doing amazing work and opening it up as a live, um, you know, Zoom kind of interaction. So I remember going up to the first one and you could see in the chat all the names of the people were there. And I'm like, oh, that, that person, I knew that person in graduate school. So you could start actually you know, building back relationships with people and alumni, because alumni from all over the world were now tuning in to watch and listen and have conversations. And I thought, what a beautiful thing to stop being um, so reactive to the pandemic and just concentrating on just the here and now, and instead thinking forward, what are we doing that's already continued to, to thrive despite the pandemic and moving the campus and the region forward? So we're doing something very similar. And it's... Um, you know, I think it's called forward thinking, similar, but it's called, I think they're branding it next up. What's next up? So, um, you know, so we are having our first uh, event in the next week or two uh, where we showcase our own faculty. So we want people to know that uh, we're not just hunkered down right. and they might not see us on campus, but here are lots of exciting yeah. things that are still moving us forward. I love That's that. Wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> so as the president... Uh, what goals do you still have for yourself, for the university, or for even the community? Well, um, one big goal, I think, and this is a goal that I think the governor also shares, and uh, everybody in the state of California, is how to help our students, um, you know, move into successful um, positions, either in graduate school or um, in jobs. And remember, most of our students have never um, had anyone that they knew look for a job that requires a BA. So they don't know exactly where to start. And, um, and that's true of, you know, 
just general students, even students that are not first gen, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, like you get, let's say you choose a philosophy major, then what do you do with a, a job as a degree in um, philosophy? Or if you're an art major, how do you know where to get a job? So these are things that um, the governor is very interested in, is asking higher ed, how do you help prepare um, students for the workforce? But also, are you looking ahead and saying, what disciplines of study might become more important or might ac actually be new? like the field of cybersecurity did not exist, no such thing, right? And now there are many campuses that have degrees in cybersecurity, and we know that that's a hugely important vulnerability yes. for universities and businesses. So they're asking universities to sort of look into the, you know, uh, into the future and think about what disciplines or what merging of disciplines where there, there could be powerful new courses of study that we could help prepare our students for to meet those future needs because the world is changing so fast. So that's something that, um, you know, what we did on my campus is we launched a soft launch of something we call Career Ready You. And it's, a, it's not entirely a new concept, but what it does is it merges both undergraduates and then the business community together. So what I've done is before COVID started, I was meeting uh, with all the CEOs of the major businesses in our region. Most of our students, 85% want to stay in Central Valley. They don't want to move to LA or to San Francisco. They want to stay local. <clears throat> Excuse me. So therefore, I was going to the CEOs of major corporations and businesses where they employ more, more employees and telling them that if they joined as a founding partner, that they would have access to our students and that we have a, um, an electronic platform called Handshake where they can log on and our students are, can, once we give them training on how to set, put their resumes together, their resumes can be there and said, let's say an accounting firm says, well, I would like to have, um, you know, accounting students who are juniors or seniors that have a 3.45 and above and just for tax season you know, that, to help out. Um, or they could say, I want MBA students with a certain GPA, they can type all that in and it will pop up the, the resumes. So they don't actually have to wait. Wow. Um, they can have it directly. And, um, and then they, in exchange, we also would like them to consider maybe offering like internships or um, talks or tours of their, their facility. Uh, obviously, they could come to our uh, career fair, which happens once a semester, those kinds of things. So we have um, 20 um, CEOs, and they're not just businesses. We also had mayor's offices. We have county health departments. We have, um, and not just in Turlock, but also in Merced County and also in San Joaquin, where Stockton's located. And uh, COVID hit, and so we're now starting to revive, um, going out and getting more. And then internally, what will happen is that um, Career Ready You is to say to every student, when you come in, um, they will you'll have a different pathway. So you'll be given if you're a freshman, what do you do as a freshman thinking about your career? Because so often our students, um, the national statistics show that um, students, uh, the percentage of students who go to the Career Development Center while they're still in undergrad is quite small. Mm -hmm. um, like, did either of you ever go to the Career Development Center when you were in undergrad? I don't think so. Junior year? Maybe and, once. And yeah, they, yeah, yeah. I, was, I went there my junior year and they said I should be a foot doctor. <laughs> <laughs> really so you took I've one of those 
and it's I, just one of those aptitude tests, yeah, right? I, I, mm-hmm. and I hate <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. That's really well, weird. But, uh, here's the statistics uh, nationally when they do the statistics. Only 16% of students ever walk through the door of the Career Development Center. And usually when they do, they do it, like you said, Fred, as a junior or senior, when it's almost too late. Mm -hmm. So our our students are commuters, and they are um, under economically resourced. So they are working two jobs, sometimes three jobs. There are jobs that have nothing to do with their future career. And so they'll say, well, I'll go there after I graduate, and then I'll, I'll figure out how to write my resume. Um, and by then, their resume, all it can say is, I have a degree, here's my GPA, and yeah, I've worked, but I've worked as a cashier, I've worked in, you know, service industry, nothing related to their their jobs. So um, this new career ready you will give them a, a career path. This is what you should do as a freshman. You should um, think about exploring, and then as junior and as senior, you should now doing um, internships and getting faculty, um, you know, bind up to the letters of reference, et cetera. So they have a, a, a roadmap that explains. And then what I've just recently done is to work with our county um, workforce development office. It's, um, they have money from the federal government and from the uh, state government for workforce development. And they can offer internships at something like $3,000 a semester wow. uh, for students. And then, um, so we are working with them in our career ready so that you, so that we can, then I can go back to these CEOs and say, I know you don't have money. Most of them don't have money to offer paid internships, but now this, the uh, workforce development has the money for it. And then students can get much more experience and, and be part of career ready. So it's both the, the connection from the outside and the, the uh, formative support on the inside. And that's our career ready initiative. So that's one thing. That's, that's very good. I love that. <laughs> Yeah, that's, you know, and I think, um, as you, as you know, um, a lot of K, K-12 schools, um, or a lot of high schools are kind of finally jumping, jumping mm-hmm. in this, where, where they're concerned that, um, a lot of students really don't know what they wish to do, which is, which yeah. honestly yeah. is fine. You know, yes. I, yeah. I, I think it's fine. I mean, I didn't know what I was going to do until way, way, way later in life. Um, but, we're um, we're at the end now, but one of the things in which we've in which we always wish wish to do is to ask all of our guests one question, one one last thing. What is your call to to action? And so, if so, if you were to sit any any of us down and and you only had one one tidbit, what would be your call to action? You mean for? Um... For adults, or are you talking K-12? Just your philosophy of what your call to action is. Uh, well, I would say at a more meta level then, the call to action to me is always to um, to envision and dream and try to make a difference, try to improve the human condition. And that could be in small ways, in small, small immediate ways about how you... Um, foster a strong family and how you go about having positive interactions with your family members at home in COVID situations, you know, where you can introduce levity or happiness or new traditions at the, at the very fa- personal family level, but also at the workplace level in terms of, 
you know, what can you do to improve um, conditions at work, whether you're, um, you know, someone without a managerial title or it's certainly with a managerial title, you have more capacity to do that. And then um, also at a community level, what are you doing in the community that's going to help others in your um, in your town, in your community, in your groups, et cetera. Um, so always, um, and I think this goes back again to my parents' philosophy of always trying to help those that are in need and improving people's lives in any way that you can, keeping that sort of at the forefront. So, and education, I think, is one of the most powerful and one of society's longest standing institutions um, in the history of the planet, in human history. But education is one extremely powerful way that we can uh, help advance um, human condition and human understanding. Beautifully That's put. Beautiful. Yeah, That's beautiful. beautifully put. <laughs> Ellen, thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks for your time. Thanks for all of your work with your students and um, just making a better tomorrow. Thank you. It's such a pleasure and great seeing you both. What a wonderful program you're doing. So yeah, thank, thank you. you. Thank you, Ellen. Thank you.